Welcome to episode 201 of the Movie City Maniacs. On tonight's episode, we are honored to have the director of My Bloody Valentine, George Mahalka, join us in studio to discuss his career in filmmaking. Welcome to the Movie City Maniacs. I'm Kyle. I'm Maniacal Maddie. You're still going with that, eh? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm Adam. I'm, I'm not going with it. I, I screwed it up horribly, <laughs> and I embarrassed myself last episode. Our 200th episode. Yeah. So yeah. You really tanked that episode. I'm not going to lie, buddy. Like, it wasn't one of my best. 200 episodes. You, you figure you would have it figured out. It was, the, pre- it was the pressure. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and also knowing <laughs> yeah. that, no, no, that episode was great. But yeah, no, yeah. also, we, we've been uh, hinting at this for a few episodes now that we were going to have a very special guest. Yeah, if you were listening to our last, our whole top 100 slasher film series, the last four episodes, uh, that was, you know, the, the big countdown. We just finished the top 25 and kind of the cherry on top to finish it off. Uh, it just worked out that we were able to get the director of one of our favorite films. Yeah. Yeah, George Mahalka, who uh, it was number six on our list, right? Number six, uh, I believe, of all time slasher films. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, pretty exciting to have him in here. Yeah, we have taped the discussion already. It is an incredible, he incredible He is such a raconteur. Like, yeah. I can tell a story. He is, He's got a few stories, yeah, too. He, uh, and, and such some, a charming fella, too. And his yeah. origins are, are not what you would think. Right. Um, so, and, and there's going to be some tidbits of information that I don't think many people know about. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to do a mini version of uh, we always start our episodes with what you've been watching. I kind of want to talk about something before we get into this. Sure. I was watching uh, A Few Good Men last night, and right before it got on, it said it was rated R for language. Oh, yeah. Does that seem kind of harsh for a movie like A Few Good Men? Like, the language isn't really that salty at all. There's, like, one scene with, like, I guess uh, uh, Jack Nicholson talking about, like, getting a blowjob from a superior officer is one of the best things. But that's the saltiest thing I can think of in this movie, right? It seems like the ratings I, are I haven't watched insane. A Few Good Men in maybe 25 years, so oh, okay. I, I probably don't. It's uh, been a while. Yeah. What about the scene, like, the whole... That the trial is based on where they grab the guy. It, it, it is so tame. Like oh, okay. you would see this in Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like this movie is <laughs> very tame. Like the, the, everyone always compares yeah. a few good men yeah. to all oh, here. Are you afraid yeah, yeah, of the dark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might be the first time in history. Um. <laughs> Uh, so is that the movie you're going to discuss? No, 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 no. no. I, 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 I was just, I just saw this. I'm like, R for language. Like, what in the fuck? Because we, we talk about the ratings board on My Bloody Valentine. Like, yeah. It just seems like they are just pulling out letters out of their hat. Well, I, I do think it, uh, the 90s, it reversed again, and they were they were out for blood a bit. Yeah, where... it just seems weird that this movie would be R. Like, there's nothing that dictates it being R. We are going to talk about the ratings yeah. board and how that affected My Bloody Valentine, but... Uh, 
Uh, yeah. yeah. For language. I saw language. Language. Like, huh. Like, maybe, like, Tom Cruise and Kevin Pollock's, like, maybe Kevin Pollock's, like, talking like a dirty motherfucker. I don't know if you guys... Cracking again, open a moose head. Haven't seen this movie in a while. But Kevin Pollock is way more charming than Tom Cruise in this movie. I know it's so fucking hard to believe, but it's like, wow, that... Interesting. Kevin Pollock, man. I, I don't know if Cruise really had the... He was more smarmy. This he actually was, is a good yeah. segue to the movie that I wanted to discuss. What, what movie are you thinking? Um, the Color of Money. Oh shit! So I think I know. I think you've seen this, Kyle. Right? This Scorsese movie. Yeah, yeah. Maddie, have you ever seen this? Uh, this is the prequel. Uh, sequel. Sequel to The Hustler. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I haven't seen it. No. I I've been I've had this on my list for a long time. You know, combination of I like The Hustler and then also. You know, really like Paul Newman and really like Scorsese. And after I was an idiot and realized, oh, Scorsese in the 80s after Raging Bull was actually really good. We, we talked about this on our 1985 yeah. episode where... Uh, after Hours? After or? Hours, which is so fucking awesome. Um, I decided to give this one a shot. And this is definitely like more probably of Scorsese for hire, like hire for Hollywood. Again. Um uh, you know, I, I imagine he still would have had to have some sort of um, affinity for the original movie, but it do, it doesn't have the personal touch. And he was trying to make the Temptation of Christ at the same time, and oh, like yeah. that that went on for almost a decade. So this feels like maybe he's trying to fit something in. But man, does it fucking just like go? I I is it zippy? It's super zippy. It's the hustler is not the, the hustler no. is kind of a slog, right? Like the, you the, feel every like hour that he's sleeping in that pool hall. Like oh yeah, like the hustler is is, and there's some downer moments in this, mm-hmm. but they're always played in like eighties. Eighties <laughs> pop moment. music is gonna <laughs> jump in any second now, and I actually I love Tom Cruise in this, but again, Tom Cruise isn't like charming. He's kind of like a man, like he's mm-hmm. like a man child, like a. A, a petulant kind of moron in a lot of ways. Hey, like a frat kid who just got out of university uh, kind of deal. He's got, you, you can tell he's, he's like ca- the cocky young kid, isn't he? Yeah, and, and he comes from some privilege, but he doesn't really know. He's got no street smarts, and Newman's there to teach him how to actually play mm-hmm. pool so you can make a lot of money and then maybe go on to one of these pool championships and take it on. So he's, Tom Cruise is really good at pool, but not really good at anything else to do with yeah. life, and he doesn't listen to anyone. Uh, and their back and forth is incredible. And Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonia, uh, who we saw in, cons- I think, was it Consenting Adults? Which she was the the, the one yeah, wife. Yeah. Uh, I think she's she's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. And the the mother of the Grimm on Grimm, which we will be talking about in just Grimm, a couple Grimm, episodes. Grimm, Grimm, Grimm. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, their their kind of connection and 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 back and forth, I just found was was excellent. And but I, I think Cruz is amazing as this co- cocky, naive um, guy that doesn't really get it. My only complaint is maybe like he twists it, his character twists a little bit at the end, and it seems like it comes on a little too fast. Um, but just like a, a really enjoyable movie, it's got an amazing. And to the 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 freeze cut, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it an eight. I, I really really liked awesome. it. Awesome. Can I continue talking about Tom Cruise? Let's go. Because I watched Magnolia. I was in oh, wow. such a bummer of a mood. I uh, something happened this week, and I had to. I had a rough morning, so I was watching this movie, and like 
I wanted to go to the, the, the sanctuary, the cathedral of a movie. It was like, all right, man. Yeah. Like, I, I want to feel the emotions. This movie's going to take me there. Tom Cruise in this, that might be his best role ever as, like, the... Uh, the, the it might be, yeah, in my, my, in my opinion as well. so good as, as, like, this cocky guy who's, like, the veneer is such, like, a, a womanizing... Respect the cock. Respect <laughs> the cock. And he, he, the, the thin veneer that, like, they scratch it a little bit, and he comes unraveled, mm-hmm. and then he goes to see his, uh, I don't know, give anything away, but his dad dying. And it's he a strange a father, yeah. Fucking great scene where he is, like, spilling out how much he hates him but yet he doesn't want to see him die either like it was such like a gut-wrenching moment this movie everything is firing in all cylinders it's almost like a uh, a thousand tales told all at the same time within 24 hours there's a kid who's at the uh a quiz show whose dad's kind of taking advantage of his smarts there is an ex-kid genius who's kind of his life's falling apart but he's still kind of lying on that like a uh, his one claim to fame he was a smart kid and right. you know, he's kind of dope and there's like a, a woman who yeah there's so many things going on John in this C. Riley movie. is excellent in this he, as this dopey cop who's trying to look yeah. for love and he finds love in this like coke riddled girl who is getting abused by her dad who's all the host of the game show that this kid Did is on. Did you talk about the toads yet or the pro- I frogs? have not. Oh, okay. th- th- that <laughs> came out of left field. I, I, that's, I've that's seen this if movie. If you haven't seen it, we should say no, no more I've about I've seen this movie. I totally forgot about that. But there is one scene that I was watching. It's like this might be one of the best scenes in cinematic history where there's an Amy Mann song playing. Me. And they're all like in this scene of where everyone's depressed at the lowest part of their life and they're all singing along. And it's not hokey. It's not like I don't know cheesy. how he pulled that off it is such a feat and like it it hits you in the fucking and i think he just saw her performing at largo or in Mm. la or something and was like oh man she she, because she her career was kind of i think falling falling apart she was in that band till tuesday in the Mm. 80s and that died and it it seemed like she was kind of going nowhere and then i think he 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 perfectly found that music to fit this movie and it, it's not obvious at all the things for this scene to work this perfectly there are so many plates spinning and none of them hit the ground which is such a feat of filmmaking this is early you know pt where mm. he is just always just trying to seem like every shot is trying to outdo himself yeah um and he this actually might be my favorite movie like boogie nights was good this is i think like top tier like, i've been i've been curious so this is the only one, and Punch Drunk. I'd like to watch both of them yeah. soon because I haven't seen them in a while, in a long time. A Punch Drunk, I, I think, since the uh, maybe a year after it came out. I've seen Magnolia maybe mm-hmm. twelve or thirteen years ago, but it, it's still kind of on the outer edge. Um, I, I've got to do it. His his filmography is another one. It's kind of like for me, mm-hmm. if you're arguing about where to place Tarantino movies or, or Wes Anderson films. It's really difficult because they're also yeah. freaking good. Um, and even and the, different. The intro of this, there's 10 minutes of people telling the most, uh, the narrator telling the most insane stories of like urban legends that you wouldn't believe. Like, this movie is it's, it's, it's such a treasure. It's chock full of ideas. I, I, I think, like, I was going to go nine, but now I'm talking about it. Like, I might go 9.5. Like, this yeah. might be like one of the Best movies I've seen all year. Yeah, goddamn. Well, I, I missed the memo that we were watching Tom Cruise movies. <laughs> we know you hate Tom Cruise, so that's why. Uh, I'm kind of actually hurt that I didn't get invited <laughs> to this. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go 
Maybe the opposite route. I've been, I've been yeah. on like a 90. It's funny because I watched like a, a Coen Brothers movie for the first time, a David Lynch movie for the first time. I'm not going to talk about those. Um, not this episode anyways. I've been on like a, um, I guess. Medea? No, ma- yeah. Medea. <laughs> a 90s action movie kick. So I did like okay. Passenger 57 with Wesley uh, Snipes. Yeah, 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 I haven't yeah. seen that probably in 20 years. Yeah. Had a blast with it. I'm actually currently going through Steven Seagal's filmography. Oh, are you going like from start to finish? No, I'm going to just do the main like okay. ten, 10 one. <laughs> yeah, I'm halfway yeah, through yeah. the main ten. Um, that's still crazy. T- yeah. Ten is that's y- a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm enjoying them, but I'm going to talk about one that that I had seen for the first time, not a Seagal. Film. Oh, I'm going to say Under Sorry. Siege too. <laughs> no, this actually stars Brian Bosworth, the football player. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what was it? Ice Cold? Stone Cold, 1991. Have you yeah, seen this? Yeah, I, I saw this ages, ages ago. Holy shit, man. <laughs> I was watching this and yeah. I'm like, is this the greatest action yeah. movie ever? Uh, so it, it like right away it opens up and it's all these bikers and they're like putting a, like a, a beer can on their, on, the, on their shoulder and they're trying to shoot it. <laughs> And then that's not like, that's not crazy enough. So then he puts it like right on his face or something and they're shooting it off. And then he's like, fuck this. And he grabs a machine gun and it's like <laughs> balancing the, on the guy's head, this beer gun. And he pulls a machine gun and blows it off. Like, it's just all these like bikers. Doing- I, I remember they, there was one scene where they have like the motorcycle and they spin it up and they're spinning it. They're going to put his hand in the spokes of like the, the tire. I remember that was like part of like that because he was a snitch or something like that. Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. They take off, yeah, yeah, one of the guys, a different guy's hand. Yeah, now I know what you're talking about. But yeah, this film is just crazy. It's just all these rowdy bikers, and then it opens up, and it's kind of like a Stallone kind of Cobra moment where there's these guys. They're uh, holding a a grocery store hostage, and Brian Bosworth is going to go in there. He takes out guys with cans, uh, and then at the end, he's like cleared up an aisle four or something. (laughs) He's got like a, a fucking random like. You know, three foot iguana just roaming around his house with the hot naked girl in his bed. When the uh, the agents come and they want him to go undercover, because I guess the whole the whole story is these biker gang have, have gone uh, gotten out of control. One of them gets arrested, and for blowing away, they go into like a church and blow away like with a rocket launcher or something or <laughs> shotgun a, a priest or something, and uh, and. Uh, yeah, anyways, he has to go undercover. And th- their boss is Lance Hendrickson, who is oh, awesome. fucking great in this. He's like, he's having so much fun with this role. And he's got so many great li- one-liners, has, too. Has he been bad? He's been in bad movies, but I don't think he has ever been bad. Yeah, he's usually the best part yeah, of those I agree. bad movies. But he, yeah, he, this may be one of his best roles. And also by his side is William Forsyth. I don't know if oh, you know awesome. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's a great, like, he's the great kind of, the tough guy villain, mm-hmm. the secondhand man to Lance Henderson. He's the one that kind of is like, you know, because Brian Bosworth is going to go undercover and he's constantly like, you know, not feeling him. He knows something's off about him. But yeah, there's a great scene where the initiation and it's like this montage and it's like this big biker hangout and they're all doing all these kind of crazy stuff. And first he has to like race them. And then in the middle of the circle, there's like a mud, uh, mud, there's like a, a mud battle, I guess, uh, set up. <laughs> Um, and they're just beating the crap out of each other. And Brian Bodsworth is going to come and take out the biggest guy because um, he wants them to hire him so he can go undercover. Yeah, th- this movie is crazy. There's a, an amazing motorcycle uh, chase scene that it, that's incredible. Uh, the ending is, is like this huge, huge, like helicopters and a whole like uh, um, tr- trial. Uh, where where is it? Uh, in some big government building. 
though with like they're gonna dro- they're gonna attach a bomb to him and drop him down <laughs> as the bomb. Like this movie is ready to get his helicopters coming in with all these soldiers taking over and blowing away all the the judges and stuff. Uh, it's 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 crazy. This yeah. seems awesome. I, I had a blast with this. I mean, I, Brian Bosworth. I see he's really wooden. He's like, he's wooden. Like yeah. his his one liners are fine, but he's he's yeah. He's they very they were really trying to make him a star in the eighties. That just didn't yeah, work you, out. But did I mean, again, yeah. is he that much worse than eighties Stallone or you know yeah. Schwarzenegger? I don't know. But yes, he is. But <laughs> <laughs> but you, yeah, you can maybe understand why he didn't. I think he did like other movies, but you can understand yeah. maybe why he didn't become a star. But as like just a force, like he's just a big he's tough a big guy, fella. and you believe that you know when he's going to pick up some guy over his head or whatever that you know it's believable but yeah this film I had a blast there's a great scene too even like just that biker culture like the guy dies um, one of the guys uh, in the gang and so they have bring his corpse in the middle of their party, they set him on his motorcycle, uh, and then they light it up like a, a bonfire. They all have oh, a party, nice. a bonfire and party around pyre. his his dead body, burning on the motorcycle. <laughs> like all that biker culture stuff is great too. Yeah, th- this film, uh, I'd applause again. It does do that kind of thing. Like the point Point Break is is obviously yeah. a better film, but you know the undercover where the middle part, it like. Is he going to be caught? And then there's always, there's a girl involved, and he's yeah. going to try to get her out, and she finds out about him. And so, so some of that kind of slows down the film a bit, which you don't really want when you're yeah. watching a Brian Bosworth. Like I don't want a story; I just want crazy. Was, was there a bad iguana he was trying to put out? Like a iguana who's on the like the top? No, they don't. To, like, they don't really go uh, any. Like again, it's just one of those weird moments where like, I, I let's just, just have him have a, an iguana just because people will not talk like, about a, it. Like a pita guy who's like, hey, no. I, I'm going to <laughs> save this iguana. Um, but yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. Ooh, this is the hard one i'm between seven and a half and eight but oh boy that's high for me i'll yeah. tell you right now this will be making our end of the year um best discoveries best discoveries because I, I i totally had a blast with this and i I'm excited to watch again this i would love to like you know get together with some pizza and beers and we'll get some motorcycles we'll have like yeah. a little round by your house. <laughs> and, and would this be above a lot of the uh seagal seagal stuff you've been watching yes and no <laughs> Like again, hard to kill for me is still like hard to kill is up there like top ten or fifteen best action movies of all time. Like I'll put that above almost anything. But some of his other stuff, like Under Siege, I liked, but it it didn't hit. I didn't love it as much as I thought. I remembered enjoying it. Above the, what's the other his first one, Above the Law. Like yeah, that is like a cast. Like it's got like yeah. Pam Greer and Henry Silva, a bunch yeah. of a bunch of people. But it again, it tries to do too much plot. I find these movies that I don't want to watch a two hour Seagal movie. With you know a, a plot, yeah. <laughs> I want to see him smashing people through as much furniture Unless and shelves and glass. About voodoo like a voodoo yeah, uh, guy yeah, that I am. In. Yeah, but you know, yeah, the, the other big passenger fifty seven was was the big one for yeah. me. That which that I should have talked about because that starred the um, the lead guy that we just talked about in Warlock three. I can't remember his name offhand right now. Yeah. But he's the guy that took over the warlock role. He's he's great in Passenger yeah. 57. He's a great fucking villain in that. Which, yeah, I, I think that's another, like, that's up there. Another gem for me. That That's, Th- that's uh, another one I haven't seen. You can kind of see how the Wesley Snipes is going to be a star. Whereas you watch this, everything's great. Right. But Brian Bosworth, maybe if they had someone that had a little more, more charisma, it might be better. But Wesley I, Snipes, you I see how he's going to be a star. I bet that's like 27... Years. years since I've seen past yeah. like past 57. Yeah, it, yeah, it's crazy how old all these films. Because I remember, yeah, like <laughs> yeah, not how old we are. Yeah. How well, old these films? But also, are. like when I f- watched that, I was probably like twelve. I pr- yeah. like should I have been watching that when I was twelve? I don't know. Uh, it's not too bad. Like I, I do it's, love it's probably the, violence. Uh, yeah, I do love the. I got some advice for you. Always, Always bet, bet on black. black. 
<laughs> hey, man, how do you um, like your steak? Bloody. And he yeah. shoots the guy in the eye. <laughs> yeah, to- totally having a blast revisiting all these like early, um, early to mid '90s uh, action movies. Cool. Um, Should we get down to it like business? Yeah, yeah let's get into it. So, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, just so you know, we also covered. Uh, if you want to go back and really dive deep into my bloody Valentine, mm. we covered it on our 170th episode. So you can go back. We did it for Valentine's Day this last, past yeah. year. Um, we're, we're romantic like that. We've right? talked about it on multiple episodes. Yeah, we love this. Yeah, movie. Th- it we is. Really like it's one movie. of those, and yeah, you can hear our enthusiasm when we talk about it with George. But yeah, it is one of those. Uh, horror films that kind of clicked with all of us, um, which you know that's does, why it's number work. six in yeah. our best yeah. slashes yeah. of all time. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's throw to George. We have a special guest here. Uh, we're proud to introduce uh, a master storyteller who, for the past forty years, has made films all over the world, uh, honored with over fifty nominations and awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award and the Distinguished Service Award from the Directors Guild of Canada. Hopefully this is not this is all true. Um, <laughs> of course, uh, to horror fans, he is known as the classic, the, the filmmaker of the classic Canadian slasher, My Bloody Valentine, a film that I may add that Quentin Tarantino has actually named now. He's moved it past Halloween as his favorite slasher of all time. Welcome to the show, George Mihalka? Mihalka? Mihalka. Mihalka. Okay, okay, I got that. Good enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is uh, an exciting... This is so exciting for us to have you here, George. Yeah, we, we uh, I think I mentioned uh, we got connected uh, because your neighbor and I are, are friends, uh, Greg Vickers, and uh, when we were talking, we're, we're about to do uh, a massive series around slashers, the top 100 uh, of all time, which... Um, at first, I'll, I'll be honest, these two are the big slasher guys, and when they, they told me we were doing top 100, I was like, is, is that possible? He has a, a top six, that's for sure. Uh, but actually, we, I've, I've, over the year, we've we been researching and looking at a lot of stuff. I found a lot of stuff to like, but we all really agree on My Bloody Valentine and always have. It's, it, it's a top 10 on our list. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, I thank you. And uh, something we all really like. Uh, but before we kind of go into that uh, i'd love to talk a little bit about your kind of history and how you you know you got in you're you're originally from uh hungary or, or you were born there that's correct uh, yeah and um how did you, the beginning of uh, you know your filmmaking career start was, was it that you were enraptured by the movies or or was something later in life uh it was actually in to one extent it was an accident but then looking back on it it was probably meant to be right um, when I came to Canada, I was nine years old. I didn't speak English or French. So the only thing I could do was basically watch television. And obviously the first thing I watched and fell in love with was hockey. Oh, right. uh, <laughs> Did you watch it in English or in French? Um, I can't remember really. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, I guess at that point it doesn't matter, it, does it? It didn't matter this because is in I Mon- wouldn't understand. This is in Montreal. Yeah. So obviously I arrived in 1961 and uh, the Habs only won seven cups that year. <laughs> uh, so it got to the point where, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun, and I was watching all these great hockey players. 
Yeah, what, uh, uh, that would have been Rocket and John uh, uh, Bellavo. John Bellavo and Bobby Russo and Cornwallier. And, yeah, uh, like an, uh, just a, uh, these, as both of these guys. But, uh, we, we know Dump about Wars, that. Lee, Jacques Plante. <laughs> you know, but potentially <laughs> you know. Uh, still considered the, the greatest uh, yeah. team and then, in NHL. Yeah, history. exactly. So, so what happened was basically, obviously, I couldn't do anything but watching hockey was easy because it the rules are pretty similar to soccer. Right. You know, it's got a goalie, it's got forwards, offside. it's got defensemen, it's got offside, you score a goal, you you make a save. So it was easy. But obviously that made me very visual mm. because I couldn't understand the language. Um back in those days when you arrived in the in the country there was no special programs for kids going to school. Basically, the special program I got was sit in the back of the class <laughs> and be ignored. Questions, uh, right. you know. So all I did was doodle mm. um, for quite a few years. Failed a couple of times. Then, art classes, do you like excel that kind of deal? Yeah, yeah I excelled at art and math. <laughs> right. Um, because, again, you didn't need language. Math is the universal language. Yeah, you didn't need, you didn't need language to figure out what 2 plus 2 was. <laughs> So anyway, uh, to make a long story short, um, between having fights with French kids in the morning going to school because they thought I was English and English kids in the afternoon because they thought I was French, I had not much else to do but read. Okay. Uh, my parents had an extensive library in Hungarian, so one of the things that happened was I ended up reading all these great classics translated into Hungarian, including things like The Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's Heart nice. of Darkness, yeah. and 1984, <laughs> and so on as a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old. Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit intense, but hey, man. Like, well, you know, hey, you know, I didn't know any difference. It was just fun. It was the only yeah. thing I could do. Um, that developed into a, a love of reading and a love of literature. So by the time I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to be... Um, an English teacher and a professor okay. of English. Hmm. One of the reasons, obviously, for that was my my hero at the time was Leonard Cohen, I, and Leonard Cohen spent his time his summers in Greece, uh, hanging out with beautiful Swedish models. Yeah, <laughs> and I thought, what a great idea! I could be a professor, teach during the winter, and in the summers go off and hang out with Swedish models in Greece. Um, Leonard had it figured out. He did have it <laughs> Not figured <gonna> out. <laughs> So anyway, all that to, to say, I ended up going to university where I got a degree in honors in literature and started teaching in a high school while studying for a master's degree in something called educational technology. Uh, one of the reasons for educational technology was um, I was always interested in drawing. I drew all the time. I painted. Um, and this, this was a new master's program that included, um, I guess, media to, to, as teaching tools. Mm. So I started playing with video, and I started playing with, with slides and photography, and, and, uh, and had a lot of fun doing it. And at that time, my roommate, a guy called Rodney Gibbons, who ended up becoming my director of photography on my bloody <laughs> Valentine. Oh, cool. Also, was studying film at the same university. And uh, so what happened was I would help him out on his films, and he would help me out on my videos. 
Crossover uh, right there. It's awesome. Exactly. So one day I'm walking through the school and the head of the fine arts department, the film, film section of the fine arts department says to me, Mahalka, I want to talk to you. I said, yeah, what is it? He says, I have a bone to pick with you. I said, really? <laughs> okay. You <laughs> used to fight it. Yeah, yeah, you take <laughs> off your glasses yeah. and like, you put some yeah. foil on the knuckles yeah. and shit like exactly, that. Exactly. You know, I've only known him really by sight and or by name, but I've never had a course with him and never really had any discussions with him before. So anyway, uh, he, I said, so what is it? He said, the films that your name appears on along with Rodney's keep winning awards. And the problem is you're not in our program. Uh, you're making us look bad. <laughs> exactly. So he said, I'd like to offer you, you know, a place in our program. At that time, it was Sir George Williams University turned into Concordia, mm. and it was the premier film school in Canada. What it year was, would have this been? This would have been 73, 74. Okay. Um, it was incredibly difficult to get into that program. Um, they took 24 people in grade one in, in first year. Mm -hmm. That turned down into 16 by second year. Holy moly. And it turned into eight by the third and fourth years. That's how <laughs> difficult it was. This That's is like the slasher of universities. <laughs> like oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, like, a, there's oh, yeah. only one girl you, left. <laughs> yeah. And we had a fabulous um, Polish uh, um, professor called Andre Herman, who is, you know, he was a great filmmaker in Poland, and obviously the communist regime and everything right. else got, mm -hmm. got him out to Canada, too. A so, lot of those, those movies, interesting enough, are just kind of the, the Polish and the Czech movies from, from a lot of the 60s. And, uh, they're just getting released now. Exactly. Because exactly. they were so buried. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they were so subversive. Yes. You know. So anyway, um, I told John, John Locke, he was the head of the department, I said, that's great, but I'm not going to start in, in, in first year. You know, mm -hmm. He said, no, 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 no. Rodney's in going into third year. I want you to come into third year. You'll be one of the eight. <laughs> that's awesome. Interesting. So he, yeah. he could see, too, that probably you two worked really well yeah. together and yeah. didn't want to separate that. Yeah. So Rodney and I ended up spending two years making films. By that time, I ended up teaching in a high school and teaching at the university, actually. I ended up teaching um, experimental electronic art. Okay. Uh, which was basically video <laughs> in <laughs> nice. those days yep. to a graduate program in the fine arts department. So Rodney was working at that time already at the National Film Board as his assistant cameraman. So we both had an income, so we could actually spend money on making films. So we made a lot of films at those two years including a couple of half-an-hour films. Uh, so this moved away from doing kind of experimental yeah. filmmaking. Well, we, we ended up doing experimental. One of them was a very much a, 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 a home invasion drama on, shot on location in the countryside awesome. with five, five actors, a big crew. The other one was something called Pizza to Go, which was basically a uh, experimental narrative about... Um, um, a stoner who orders a pizza and smokes a joint and they tell him that it's going to be 30 minutes and for he's... the pizza to arrive. <laughs> so he starts watching TV <laughs> and it was the days when the first channel flippers were around, but they were still cabled. 
you know. So he would just flip through the channels, and we would then shoot all these movies. Oh, that sounds that like so were, much fun. That was what he was watching on TV. And in which, in every one of these excerpts of movies, he was the hero. Oh, that's awesome. That and, is a great and idea. there was somebody who was delivering pizzas who we found that was the villain. One was a private detective movie. The other one was a, a cop show. The other one was a... Uh, was like a Sherlock Holmes, 18th century. Another mm-hmm. one was a Western. And basically what, what the whole idea was is that with each of these snippets, and it would, then we'd shove them to a commercial every now and then. So we had a beer commercial, a juice commercial, a condom commercial. <laughs> it just sounds like you guys are just like, all right, let's, what, what yeah. are we going to do? What do I want to film? Yeah. I don't know. Let's do this. That's, that's, yeah. I've always wanted to do a beer commercial. Let's well, do exactly. it. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. So basically the whole concept was that with each of these excerpts, you find out more and more that the villain is actually delivering poison pizzas. Oh. And the private detective finally finds out where the next delivery is, which obviously is to our donor, our, our, donor, our buddy, our stoner's house. Right. So we have him running up the stairs. We did this one shot, this, this circular stairs in an apartment building. We actually tied Rodney with pulleys and ropes into the middle of it and pulled him up oh and gosh. turned him around <laughs> as he was holding the camera and, and twisting as he runs up the stairs to try to save the guy from accepting the pizza. That's awesome. That is amazing. Ex- himself from accepting <laughs> yeah. the pizza. Well, he gets the door slammed in his face and our guy sits down and chews a pizza and that was the end of it. We don't know whether he lived or died because it was frozen or he was just stoned. Right. So this movie got us an, an incredible amount of um, can one. You, can you see that anywhere? Is that available? Uh, no, but uh, it, it is. I, I have a copy of it on 16 that we're going to be getting uh, digitized just Oh, incredible. Yeah, keep us in the loop on that. I will. I it will. sounds awesome. super cool. It, it almost know. seems like it'd be a great demo reel for, for a student to have because you, you're kind of showing we can do Western. That was exactly the idea. That was exactly the idea. And were you also influenced by, like, you talked about experimental filmmaking, but it was a kind of a big thing in, uh, with, uh, like, Michael Snow. and, and uh, Yeah. With, so it was almost like you're taking that idea and then you're taking genres – well, basically, this one was more of an experimental and narrative. Right. We did we did the Michael Snow ripoffs and all of that <laughs> earlier on in our in our career. Right. You know, um, um, but anyway, so all that to say that this film caught the attention of of a production manager in Montreal who was actually the first graduate from a film school, and in those days, getting into the film business. Having, having gone to film school was almost a handicap. Nobody wanted anybody uh, from a film too, school. Um, yeah, the numbers kind of deal? Yeah, you know, you're too elitist. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you know we, need, we need real men working. Well, yeah. you're going to the 70s, you know. too, where it's all renegade filmmaking. Exactly. Yeah. You know? so, so anyway, so this production manager um, really liked the work and really liked Rodney and I, and uh, I asked him if he had a, chance to hire me as anything on a film shoot and I found out that he was doing a big big feature film as a matter of fact you know no 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 it was a it was a film called uh, L'homme en colère directed by Claude Pinoteau one of the uh, French new wave directors yeah. starring Lino Ventura who was at the time France's biggest star he was their uh, Humphrey Bogart 
and Angie Dickinson, who is a big American yeah, yeah. star, and Richard Crenna, who became even a bigger star after the um, the first Blood series. Uh, yeah. um, but anyway, it was like seven point five million dollars back in '76. This is huge budget. Yeah, huge budget. So I ended up work. You know, I said I want to learn how to how the machine works. I know how to make my own films. I want to know how a, a real film is made. So I got a job on that as uh, office PA, coffee boy. And this is something that I always use for my, uh, with my students when they ask me how to get ahead in the business. I said, learn to make really good coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and this is exactly what happened to me. It was, um, you know, in those days, they used to have these huge, big, like two-gallon or three-gallon percolators. Like the big urns there. Those big uh. urns. And obviously... Coffee was the Maxwell House dregs of whatever, and you'd pour it in and you'd let it go, and then it would just boil away and it would, you know, yeah. turn bitter and yeah, so yeah. on. Six hours later, come get yeah. me coffee. Here you go. Exactly. <laughs> when and I worked at a hardware store, we used to give that slop to all the contractors in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know. So, so Claude Pinoteau walks in with Alexandre Minushkin. Minushkin was France's uh, most popular or not most popular but most successful producer he produced napoleon he produced all these big shows mm -hmm. and claude and uh, and mr minushkin walk in and they take a smell of the coffee Turn the nose and up they go it? oh c'est merde c'est merde who can drink this uh, merde so it just so happened that that day we ran out of coffee and they asked me to go get coffee to buy coffee so I said, hmm, producer, director, hate this coffee. What can I do? Well, I remember that in those days, the only place where you could buy good coffee was either the Hungarian coffee shops or, or, or espresso bars or the Italian ones. The Hungarian ones in Montreal were downtown. The Italians were in the north end of the city. So I went to one of them who my father used to go to a lot, who I know the manager there, and I said, where do you buy your coffee? Where do you get your beans? Yeah. Exactly. So they said, well, you know, we get them from Union Coffee, but how much do you need? I said, I, only a couple of kilos. He said, all right, we'll sell it to you. Oh, and they sold it to me for the same price as the Maxwell House Crack. Oh, that's awesome. So I went back, made some new it coffee. It's like you are like doing organized crime with coffee right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Awesome. So Pinoto walks back into the office and goes, Mmm, this smells good. <laughs> he takes a sip of the coffee and says, who made this coffee? And I raised my hand and I said, I did. He says, oh, so you know where to get good coffee. You must know where there's good restaurants. From now on, you are my driver. Oh, awesome. wow. <laughs> so I became his driver. That's very cool. So now we're driving around and I'm driving them home one day and Pinoteau's bitching about uh, not being able to find a location and how uncreative all these people are in the locations department and the art department, because he wants something that has a sense of oppression, but yet a sense of freedom. <laughs> so a bit of black and a bit of white. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. So, and he keeps saying, you know, these people know nothing. I don't understand, uh, Alexandre. I don't understand why we are here. I know it is the money, but... Uh, Right. Really? So I said, um, I hate to 
you know, because by that time I learned to speak French and English. <laughs> so um, I said, I hate to d interrupt, and it's probably not my place, but I understand that you guys have a problem with this one location that is so important. It's the end of the film. And uh, it's about 10 minutes out of the way, but I could potentially show you something. And he said, well, how would you know? I said, I read the script. <laughs> so I took him to this place, which was, at the time, Montreal. The train tracks ran in Montreal, separating sort of the, the lower end of the city and the higher end of the city. It really, literally Le was... Legit the, train tracks. <laughs> legit train tracks, many of them. And it literally was, you know the wrong side of the tracks yeah. and the right side of the tracks. And he wanted the wrong. Well, no, no, well. not that. But these tracks ran east-west. Now, across these tracks, north and south, were these late 19th century, 1880s, steel-riveted bridges that were arcs. Right. So, and they ran over these tracks. So at one point, you could stand under, these bridge, under this bridge and literally have that arc of rusted metal dripping four or five feet above your head. But yet, when you looked one way, oh, you saw a sunset. You looked the other way, you saw a sunrise. That's kind of dope, actually. <laughs> so all of a sudden, train tracks, sunrise, freedom, Yeah. Mm -hmm. time to go, oppression. The, right the, the, top the, 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 awesome. the top, the, the, the weight, that, that heavy old metal on the top. He says, I love it. From now on, you are my location manager. <laughs> That's <is> awesome. <laughs> so, so I ended up finishing this film, you know, promotion after promotion. <laughs> Mind you, I was still getting the same pay because uh, Bob Presner, who ended up being the line producer on Bloody Valentine also, when he said, you know, I'll give you a job, he said, are you ready to be exploited? <laughs> so I was making 25 bucks a day, including the rental of my car. Uh, but, you know, you hey, got to get into the business. Hey, it's somehow. only a $7.5 million production. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, but he took a chance on me. Yeah. So anyway, six months later, Bob calls me and said, there's a young, not so young, but relatively inexperienced producer who's also a distributor, who wants to make a teenage comedy. And he's looking for a young director. And I recommended him. I recommended you to him. Awesome. So I said, great. You know, I met, I met him. It was Jack Murphy uh, from Criterion Film. Mm -hmm. um, Jack liked my attitude. So... Another six months later, I ended up directing my first feature film, which was um, Pinball Summer. I was at, at the ripe old age of 26 and a half. Wow. And, um, awesome. you know, I mean, one of the things, it was not necessarily the auteur masterpiece that I wanted to make, <laughs> but at the same time, I said, you know, nobody can take away the experience of having directed a feature film. Of course, especially at that young of an age, yeah. too, right? And it was fairly successful, from what well, I understand. Well, it, it actually right? was very, very successful. Yeah. The, 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 it sold all over the world. It sold, you know, mm. it was one of the highest grossing, it was meant to be a drive-in film. 
Yeah. And it was one of the highest grossing drive-in films of that year in the United States. Um, which brings me to My Bloody Valentine, because that's where John Dunning and Andre Link, who were cinepics, who were looking for commercial films. They did Cronenberg's films, first early films. They did uh, Meatballs right. with Ivan Reitman. They did, also did Ivan Reitman's first film. Um, so Cannibal Girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, they, uh, so they approached me and uh, offered me a two-picture deal, obviously, to do comedies. And I said, great, what a fabulous thing that happened to me, you know. Uh, by that time, I was a ripe old age of 27. And so because Pinball Summer was a comedy, because my last student short film was a comedy, 24 Hour yeah. um, uh, Pizza to Go was a comedy. So um, I got hired to write a script or to supervise a script, uh, a, a comedy about doctors. There's going to be a parody of hospitals and, and doctors called Stitches. <laughs> That's actually awesome. You know, and so I also, because I was teaching in a university and uh, my literature background, I knew a couple of the guys that worked at the, um, the National Lampoon. Uh, so I got in touch with them and we got together to write the screenplay for Stitches. And it was, was it, it wasn't going to be a Lampoon, though, film. It was just with some guys that were... It, yeah, it was, it was a National Lampoon, the magazine. Right, but... But at those days, they didn't have the Lampoon it, movies yet. It wasn't... It was, so it was before Animal House. Oh, yeah. It was yeah, way yeah. before Animal House. Uh, so anyway, um, so I got the guys coming up to, from New York. I go down to New York. We're working, and uh, we're waiting for the draft of the screenplay to come out. And it's just not showing up. One of the writers tells me that the head writer of the uh, of this screenplay has really started enjoying the um, the wonderful pleasures and benefits of Peruvian marching powder. <laughs> uh, so there may be a problem. Anyway, we do get a screenplay about three weeks late. And the screenplay is about, oh, 700 and some odd pages. <laughs> to which John Dunning... Was it funny? <laughs> there were some very funny moments in it. Very funny moments in it, actually. It was just it took forever to read, right? Uh, it also had a 300-page addendum about why he chose the names of the characters. I uh, went into it, eh? Yeah, oh, yeah. You know. what, what is it, that one, one minute equals one page, approximately? Generally, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's like the epic of... Well, you know, I <laughs> the mean... The biblical it, of comedies. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it is, you know, but I mean, the one page equals one minute. You know, there's this famous one-eighth of a page called And the Red Army Invaded Berlin. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's it's... It's it's not it's not it's not an exact science. It's yeah. not an exact science. No. Yeah. So anyway, uh, John Dunning looks at me and says, "I'm not going to be able to finish reading this before we were supposed to finish shooting this. <laughs> How would you like to do your second picture first? By that time, I was kind of broke. I needed the money, and I said, "Sure, anything. You know, what do you got?" 
He said, he gave me a page. Uh, it was called The Secret. It was a one-page outline of what is the story of My Bloody Valentine. Oh, cool. So it was about the mining town as yeah. well? It kind of like just gave yeah. you like a brief... Yeah. Oh, that's a brief very brief, a one-page, mm-hmm. really sketched outline. Love triangle kind of deal kind of going a into little, it? Yeah. The love triangle wasn't really in it. It yeah. was basically, basically something bad happened in the town. One survivor of a mine disaster comes back and kills a bunch of people and it all happened on bloody valentine's day all right that was it you know and had you at this this point <coughs> halloween's probably out halloween's just came out and had you seen halloween yeah. yet? yeah yeah i saw halloween and then uh but before friday the 13th well friday the 13th came out too just before yeah just before uh just before we started shooting i think it was okay anyway um so i said to john Cool, but you know, uh, I've never made a horror picture before. And he said, Joel, you never made a comedy till you made one. <laughs> and I said, Okay, fair. Yeah. Um, the logic does track. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I said, Okay, fine. He says, Good. I've got a young writer from LA who wants to come up and work with you. Um, we got to get it done. The only problem is, is, and this was like July at the time. He says, the only problem we've got is we got to have this film shot, finished, and delivered by mid-January because Paramount needs it in theaters for February 13th, Friday, right. February 13th. So the clock is ticking from like the get-go. <laughs> There's no yeah. wiggle room with yeah. this. None, none whatsoever. You can't change and the name we, to like St. Patty's Day here. My bloody April Fool. Yeah. And if we don't deliver on time, then Paramount is not going to pay us. Oh, wow. So it's and, and, game time. And, and he says, you know, I'm not going to be putting this out of my own pocket. So can you do it? I said, of course I can. You know, I was young. I didn't need sleep. <laughs> you know. So John, John Baird, fabulous young man, fabulous, great writer, came up. And John and I spent about three weeks ironing out the details, the characters, the love triangle, were you in Montreal at this time, or were you yeah, in New Montreal, York? Yeah, Montreal. Nice. Uh, basically, what we John and I wanted to do was do something that was not Friday the Thirteenth and was not uh, Halloween. Halloween. Yeah, we wanted to make a human monster, mm-hmm. not some not some guy that you can stab and he comes back at you a thousand times. Not some, yeah. you know, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't want to do the the teenage suburban trope either, mm. you know. So obviously, having a mining town, having working class people, already helped. So we sold John on the idea that these should not be horny teenagers, uh, you know, that there should be some serious working class issues along with the storyline. That it should be more of a whodunit than uh, you know. Than this guy's around the corner. You knew who it is. Yeah, but he exactly. Just won't stop coming at you. Yeah. Exactly. You know, make make that more of a whodunit. Make it a character piece. Make it an atmosphere piece. And you really get that. Maybe my favorite thing about this movie. And this is when these guys were really like, you got to watch all these horror movies. When we, I was first getting on the podcast, and and I didn't. 
like all of them, right, guys? <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, yeah, 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 that, yeah. That were some some of the some of the classics. And then I watched this, and I went, I like this because I like that. I feel like I'm in a real space. You got it. Yeah, and, that... and, and the the community is 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 lived in uh, there, which I found very different from a lot of the other yeah. horror movies of yeah. that time. Well, that was the idea, you know, is that is that, you know, this could happen. This actually could happen. For sure. This was not some supernatural uh, being who could be in two places yeah, it's at once. Yeah, not fantastical. It's... Uh, you know, uh, one of the, in, in terms of the structure, one of the things John and I really worked hard on was how to make Axel appear and disappear and yet make it logical on why he might not be there mm-hmm. and not really suspect him, you know. Uh, right down to the last, you know, it's really um, until you don't know it's Axel, even though now you know it can't. it's not TJ and it's not Sarah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, but you still don't know who it is, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so anyway... We 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 kind Cause of because there's plausibility for a lot of yeah, different plaus- scenarios for sure. Exactly, like, anybody could have done this in this movie, which is fantastic. You're like, yeah. is it? Then they, oh no, they get they get off. Like, it's not him. All right, yeah, who, exactly. Who and I mean, be, we like, threw in the MacGuffins. Yeah. We threw in the way John picks up Cynthia by the neck. You got it. Yeah. You know, by the head, and then the minor picks her you up. You got by it. The when head. he's kissing her on the ladder, you, you know, got it. Yeah. You know, so we did all those little little MacGuffins mm. about it to to mislead a little bit. But the whole idea here was, we said. You know, in in very very you know, young arrogant terms, we're going to make the deer hunter of horror films. Oh, nice! Yeah, you know, and weirdly enough, I understand Tarantino actually called it that at one point. <laughs> That's oh, really? going to make you feel amazing, right? You know, like, yeah, all right, I said, all right I'm vindicated. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, so anyway, you know, so then once we got sort of like the the story beats out, then. Um, Bob Presner and I left to go to Nova Scotia to find the mine. Uh, we called back every now and then to let John Baird and John Dunning know what we found. In uh, so, did you look for? Mul- were you looking at multiple mines? Is it- well, we looking. We were looking for a mine that we could actually shoot at, mm. and looking for a mine that um, you know was not that dangerous to shoot at. Um, we found. Princess Mine in Sydney Mines, which just closed down six months before, so it was perfect. Everything was still functioning. It was wonderfully dirty. It was the perfect spot. Uh, they were thinking of turning it into a museum, so they left everything pretty well operational. You know, the elevators worked. The the trail cars worked. Um, the the lighting system downstairs worked. So everything was great. And obviously, as we checked those things out, we came up with, well, what different kind of kills we could do? You know, the whole whole John and Cynthia kill, which is my favorite in the uh, the shower, mm-hmm. only came about because we looked at the changing room. And we looked at the changing room and saw all those... Hanging, hanging from the... Yeah. What they did, the miners did, was they'd pull them up high so they would dry. They're it's probably like hotter up top, it's, possibly. It's, well, well, the heat rises, yeah. right? And and air air would move around. And one of the interesting things about the mine is when you're 900 meters underground, it's not cold out there; it's warm. 
it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. Uh, right. The deeper and deeper down you go. So these guys would sweat all day, you know. So then they'd come up, take a shower, and those showers were literally cinched tubes. <laughs> exactly you know, what cinched, you saw. Cinched pipes. So we said, hmm, that's pretty sharp. <laughs> yeah, that amazing. could be an interesting impalement tool. So we'd go back and we'd tell John and uh, the two Johns about it, and he'd write a scene. So next thing you know, first draft is done. We cast the actors. And what month is this now? This was August. So, so you've done, this is yeah, quick this work. Is. Oh, absolutely. It was like, you know, well, John was a great fast writer. Um, you know, the important thing was we worked out the story beats earlier. So we kind of knew where things were going. So these were all just new details. So you had your whodunit. Yeah. And the, then you could place, uh, you know, sequences ar- around that. Exactly. You saw. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, brilliant. I mean, you know, basically, I can't remember what the alternate was or the original idea on how John mm-hmm. and Cynthia would die. Uh, but then we figured that one out, said, hell, that's got to be in. Yeah. There. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, we found the laundromat. So then the laundromat came in. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so, you know, uh, then the rest obviously was in the mind. So that was a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then uh, by mid August, we're down in, uh, we're down in Nova Scotia. Mid September, we start shooting. We shoot for 30 some odd days. A uh, couple of things happened, obviously, that did not help us which was the, the people of the mine, you know, they wanted this show so badly. You know, I mean, it was a very um, kind economically... Kind of coming in? Well, it was an economically depressed neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess with mine shutting down. Like it's, yeah, uh, there was lo- no work, you know. Uh, they neglected to mention to us that you can't really bring film equipment or film lighting equipment oh, down Oh, because of the methane. Oh, no. Correct. And sparks. Yeah. So you can only shoot... The best thing you could do is the 25-watt safety bulbs that they have down there and a 25-watt inky lights, which we had, which were also safety bulbed Mm -hmm. and non-sparking. So that caught caught us by off guard because in those days, the most sensitive or fastest film available was 125 ASA. Now, 125 ASA is nothing. I mean, basically, you know, you need to get to get a 1.2 um, exposure with 125 ASA. You still need to put in a lot of light. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we couldn't. So, Bob Presner, bless his heart, somehow or other ended up finding the Panavision lenses that were created for um, uh, Kubrick's... Um, oh, Barry Lyndon? Uh, Barry Lyndon. Yeah, because oh, they shot the it all by can- yeah, candlelight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up with these super fast 1.1 lenses. Awesome. And so we lit the whole thing literally with light bulbs and the tiniest film lights available. <laughs> crazy. Uh, it still looks amazing. Like, I guess maybe that's part of the charm of this movie? Like... Well, it, I think so. I think, you know, I mean, it's uh, the the depth of field in the mine was very little. 
So it gave you that claustrophobic feel. Yeah, of course. And what it also did was, even if you were using a wide, you know, when you use a wide angle lens, then everything's in focus from the foreground to the background. Mm -hmm. Well, under such low light conditions, even a wide angle lens would only keep someone's head in focus and everything else behind it was already that lovely, just barely out of focus, yeah. but it made it feel like a real movie. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, 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 and you're also getting, you know, when you're, you're having these tense scenes down there, your your mind can almost play tricks. Like, what was that? What, mm -hmm. Was that a shadow? What, what you know? What's exactly. what's going on in the mind? Like, I I know the first time I saw this, some of those mining sequences, I kept like, oh, it's gonna it's gonna happen now. It's gonna happen mm. now. Like I I, yeah. I the, like they're, uh, but it, part of that was that kind of hazy gloss that, that yeah that's, yeah that's exactly behind. you know so that that really actually helped a great deal, but you know we still got kicked out on the mine I think four or five times because of methane buildup, uh, because even though it was a non-working mine, the coal face was still open. Mm -hmm. And mines have uh, these sort of exhaust chimneys or, or ventilation chimneys. When, when the barometric pressure drops and there's a very low pressure situation, well, the mine can't breathe. So then then methane builds up inside. So we would get kicked out, you know, oops. It wasn't for the actors going to the chili cook-off. No, <laughs> no. It wasn't built up that no, way. No, okay. not, not, not that way, no. Although we did have that problem too every now and then. <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, so we lost time on that. Then we realized that, you know, for a nine o'clock or a, let's say a seven o'clock crew call, by the time we got everybody down on those two elevators... Oh, so using the elevators to go down there, right? That's yeah, the yeah, only yeah. way, really. Uh, by the time we got everybody down there, it took an hour. Uh -huh, now, if we didn't want to go into meal penalty and pay even more, then we had to stop an hour before lunch just to get everybody up for lunch. Oh, no. Then we had to spend another hour going down. That's like four hours a day. <laughs> yeah, we'd lose four hours out of an 11-hour day. Holy moly. Uh, so that meant, you know, learning how to shoot really fast. And uh, I imagine not a lot of takes then either. Uh, well, you know, in those days, obviously, when you're shooting film, yeah. there was something called the ratio that you had to respect. Mm -hmm. I had a three to one ratio. Yeah. You know, a three to one ratio means, you know, you get three takes maximum. Yeah. And, you know, so you might have been using Barry Lyndon techniques, but not Barry Lyndon takes for this. No, this, this no, <laughs> no, exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, it was Barry Lyndon, Barry Lyndon lenses yeah. with uh, no, no amount of takes. One of the things that did help was um, I got the producers, which was unheard of in those days and still is actually, to get the cast down two weeks before we started shooting. Oh, so they could do re rehearsals? So I could rehearse them. They could, they could actually go down into the mine. They could go hang out in the local bars, get to know those people, get to know how, how that community how was worked. How was the community? You probably brought in all these people for, say, 30 days, you said, to the shooting. Like, how was hanging out with all these people in towns? Another question I have is, 
the Moosehead references in this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got one for me? Yeah, yeah I got, I've got, got yeah, some Mooseheads. Yeah. So I've, I've been waiting for... I mean, basically... Because they were an independent brewery at that time, right? They were like, very independent yeah. brewery. What happened was, um, you know, all these things were starting to cost us money. Mm-hmm. You know, so our budget started... Wow, thank you, sir. <laughs> nice cold moose head. Thank Let you. me just yeah. pop this by the microphone. <laughs> yeah. One time murdered, two times dead, and we're all drinking I, our stuff and tasting moose heads. That's our thing. Where we, we, uh, whenever we're, we're on here, we, we make sure to pop our beers. Uh, so, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I don't know if you, you knew that, but that's, that's, no, that's a well, hallmark I'm, of the, this no, podcast. No, well, I'm, glad, I'm glad I caught on real quick. Um, so... Budgets were getting really tight. One of the other things that happened is we started like $75,000 over budget before we ever started shooting. <laughs> Those lovely people of Sydney Mines decided oh, yes. that a big Everybody movie does. like this shouldn't have to shoot in some dirty, soot-filled, oh, no. rust, rusty mine. And we're about to turn this into a nice museum, so let's, let's sparkle it up a little bit for them. <laughs> they painted it. to it, it literally, when we showed up, Oh, no. uh, Bob Presner and I showed up, and our jaws dropped. It looked like straight out of a, a Disney sitcom. Oh no! It was it was what they would have imagined a, a working mind to be. <laughs> Instead of like full house, it's like full mind. Exactly. <laughs> kind of exactly. That, that was what they were probably thinking. Like I've seen minds on TV. Yeah, we need. Yeah. Our mind doesn't look like the no, minds no, on TV. No, no, And what we loved about it was that it would still. Rusty and and full of soot and it felt like dusty a working mine <laughs> and a working mine. Well, we had to hire every scenic painter out of Montreal, plus a bunch of assistants and and just people who knew how to hold a brush from uh, Nova Scotia, just to get it back and to... and, and, and get it back to what it's supposed to look like. You know, so we already started off with. Uh, one strike against us in terms of budget. So, in those days also, um, which I kind of regret that it doesn't happen anymore because it actually made shooting a film and, and getting morale, crew morale up was every day at wrap, every equipment truck would have a case of beer <laughs> on That's the tailgate awesome. provided by the production. So uh, as you're wrapping, you're having I'll a beer. Have a drink and kind of like and, a you know, decompressing a little bit. You finished wrapping of... and you're kibitzing. And next thing you know, the director's talking to the second grip or so on uh-huh. that you would never do. And, you know, everybody gets to like each other more. Everybody it ends up, into like you know, a, like a carnival becomes that a, way. a family. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes more and yeah. more of a, of a, of a close knit family. So you're, you're mirroring what you're trying to put on screen by doing this yeah. as well. Well, you know, I mean, in this case, yes, but I mean, this happened in every movie mm-hmm. in those days, mm-hmm. you know, um, anyway, that can't do that anymore because obviously drinking and driving insurance mm-hmm. and everything else. Will not allow that to happen. Pretty soon but, we're going to have those flying cars. Be fine. You know, and self driving cars. Self-driving. And yeah. then we can, so we cracking, can do that again. Cracking moose heads while we're going yeah, someplace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, old, the, the proverbial road rocket will be back. Um, so, anyway, uh, we didn't have money for that anymore. So, Bob Presner 
being the ingenious guy he was, said, hmm, we know we need a bar. We need to have beer. Uh, who's the local brewer here? You know, we're not going to get anything from Molson's. We're not going to get anything like yeah. that. And on top of that, Molson's or Labatt's would have made it feel too Canadian. You got to put the label this way when they're drinking. When they, every time they have a drink, they got to say, ah, that exactly, kind of shit. Exactly, you know. So, but on the other hand, Moosehead, hey, Moosehead's Moosehead. Some mm. people might think it's actually a made-up beer. Exactly. Could, could be for, uh, a, a, like, oh, it might, there must Very, be a lodge there or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. So it could work. Yeah. But it could also work in the States, you know, the, you know, the, the Moose Lodges or Exactly. So, so, so basically, the Moose, Moosehead, so the idea was Moosehead would supply all the beer for the crew <laughs> and the cast, and in, in return... We would use their, you know, boxes to carry the decorations. Boxes to carry decorations. Nice like neon sign in the background. That, I love that neon <laughs> sign, man. I would love to have that neon sign in my dope, basement. Right? You know, uh, so that was the reason why. Maddie, Maddie, uh, Maddie's a brewer. Maybe, yeah. maybe he can make <laughs> I think I can do. calls. Um, now, in those scenes where it, where everyone's at the bar, where, where was everyone actually drinking Moosehead while they were just hanging out on on set, or was, no? Was, that no, was no, not 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 that much of a party atmosphere. No, no. I mean, basically, um, what I would do is I would let them have one beer, and then the rest are kind and of the dummies. rest. The rest is the rest were um, ginger ale. Uh, well, no, you you could already have uh, these 0.5 beers, oh, yeah, the you know, beer non-alcoholic mm-hmm. beers. Okay. So, you know, but I would always let them have one beer, even though the first AD frowned upon that. <laughs> but I said, you know, you know, these these guys, I've known them. Most of these actors I've known, you know, half of them were in, in Pinball Summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've known them to have a couple of beers, you know. They can and, handle out. Yeah. Moosehead. <laughs> and one beer just sort of got the atmosphere yeah. going. And, you know, and also the camaraderie and everything else with them. So mm-hmm. it actually worked out great. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's one of the strengths, as, as Adam mentioned, in this film. Like these characters feel like real characters, feel like real friends hanging out. They're, they're not necessarily the tropes that you do see in a lot of these other slasher films where they're kind of the stereotypes. I feel like this seems like a real... Getting at people, and I think that's why it's... Multi-dimensional people, yeah. like, even... Uh, Keith Knight. I, yeah, Keith Knight. I was like... He's not... He, in, in, if He, he could have played his Meatballs character, where it's just, like, this kind of nerdy... Oaf. But, Oafy guy, but he's actually kind of like, he's got the girl, he's gay, you he's know... He's the voice of reason in this film. Totally, yeah, everybody boy. listens to him. But he's still a little bit goofy, right? He's yeah. still, like, he, he's still got that character these I know you guys, like... Love Hollis in this yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Love Hollis. Well, you know, I mean, basically, that was another one that we, we insisted. You know, I insisted is, again, I wanted to go against a stereotype. So generally, the fat guy's the butt of the joke. Yeah. Here, the fat guy's kind of the leader. Yeah. yeah. You know, the wise one. Yeah, and when he has the hottest girlfriend. Down. You got it. Yeah. 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 You know, 
So, yeah, he seems like he's got his shit together. Yeah. He's the one yeah. that's constantly jumping in and breaking them up when they're fighting mm-hmm. and, and, and whatnot. But he also yeah. seems like he'd yeah, have a good yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you'd want to be around <laughs> this guy. guy. Yeah. Making, yeah. like, TV dinners on a, a, a what's that called? A, a engine. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Using the engine as the microwave, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think that's another thing about this film. Like, you don't really get any characters that are really annoying that you hate and you want to die. And I, like, you kind of are sad when each person gets mm-hmm. knocked off in this film yeah, yeah. i mean even the jokester that they have in this film Howie, he's not Howie, your Howie. traditional yeah, yeah not your traditional uh you know slasher trope that you know no, you're, you're no. begging for each of these characters to die that's i don't know i think that's why yeah. at least for me personally this film is always latched on that it's well it's that's rare. that's one of the things we tried to do is to make everyone you know as sympathetic in their own way as possible mm-hmm. still keeping their own character or their individuality in in quirks because yeah alfie's a pain in the ass Mm -hmm. (laughs) but at the same time uh you know he's he's kind of a nice guy yeah you know Mm -hmm. until the end when he's just a coward yeah but he admits he's a coward he knows he knows what he is (laughs) he knows what he is and he's a coward you know but you could see why he would still be with that crew of people like you yeah I, i think they seem like believable friends whereas Again, I love the Friday Thirteenth films, but and as they they went on and on, they started making you hate the characters, and you would have like this group of people, and you didn't believe why are any of these people friends because it doesn't seem like any of these people well, I guess like each other. Or, in the end, you, know. you wanted people to die. Yeah. That became a slasher trope. Where in this, you want everyone to live, and you you kind of want want them to figure yeah. out who, who's yeah. doing this. Yeah. You, fit, yeah. like, you want to see the cool kills, but at the same time, you don't want to see these people die because you like them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was, again, you know, I mean, we wanted to, we really wanted to, um, you know, I guess by, by, the, by Friday the 13th and the first Friday the 13th and the first Halloween, you know, I could so foretell the, 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 the um, I guess the tropes and, and, the, and, and the style. And the trajectory, and of, the where trajectory this, yeah. of where this is going. So I wanted to turn all that on its head. Yeah. You know. So, you know, and then the other thing that we tried to do was, which was different, is, which ended up being our bane of our, and our curse, was to do these special effects, state-of-the-art special effects, but in a way that they've never been done before, which was in one take. Mm. Uh, So, you know, when, in the original, when Happy gets that, um, pickaxe under the chin. Well, in the same shot as the pickaxe goes into the chin, the eyeball pops out, huh. and that's mm-hmm. you know, and it's all practice. Yeah. yeah, and it's all and awesome. it, it was all you know, and it was all a combination of mechanical and uh, and practical special effects. Uh, when the kid kid's face gets boiled off. That was actually a 30-second shot of seven layers of skin boiling off, which was seven layers of makeup boiling off. Right. Uh, shot from through a, uh, a pot that had a, uh, a, a plexiglass bottom. And so was all that have, that was, I'm, I'm assuming that would have had to made everything would have been made special for this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Everything was made, you know. I mean, a lot of new designs. Uh, Tom Berman, 
and his gang just came up with some of the most amazing, amazing, um, you know, practical effects, which ended up being one of our biggest problems. When the time came for the um, rating board, the Motion Picture Association of America, uh, to uh, give us our rating, it was just all too real. It was all too real, and there was no way really to cut. So, because uh, they're winners. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I you know, I mean, I I shot mo- I shot this. You know, this was still the time when you used one camera. You didn't use two cameras, mm-hmm. so I did give it a little bit of coverage, but only if some reason or another those effects would not work. Mm-hmm. They were not made to be to 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 re-edit, right? Really, yeah. you know. Uh, well, especially if you're if you're going and yeah. making this thing that like that uh, pickaxe effect would have cost I'm sure a lot of money to do as well yeah. as just the invent inventive nature of yeah. making it you're all probably very proud of this exactly you know I mean you know when when Cynthia gets her gets impaled in the same shot as she gets impaled the water starts coming out oh, of her yeah. mouth yeah. you know I, I remember us just seeing this is before I, now we have the uncut Mm-hmm. The releases in which I know those aren't even still 100%, but I remember just seeing the still, and that was kind of like a unicorn whether this existed because there was one still in an old Fangoria magazine or something of, yeah. of the water yeah. coming out. And that was like, because we, when we first saw the yeah. film, it was, it was still the edited version yeah. back on, on DVD and whatnot. And that was like, I remember being such a big deal in 2009 when we were going to finally, finally came out. see yeah. some yeah. of this yeah. stuff. Yeah, well, that was the first time, you know, and that, since then... That was then, our Woodstock when this yeah, came out yeah. originally. <laughs> you know, since then, um, there was another release just recently, well, a couple of years ago, where some more found footage, and this time around, the um, um, the re- regenerating of images have become so so much better that now it's seamless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the and, Scream Factory release. Yeah, yeah. Did, you don't yeah, even like notice it yeah. anymore. The, yeah, the yeah, they, they did a great job, and we found some new stuff to, for them to yeah. use, right? Awesome. Uh, that's about it. I don't think there's any more new stuff. No, I think it you is know. getting a 4K release, though, under this, which... That's what I understand. You know, I, I'm excited. <laughs> Me too. I wonder what it's going to look like yeah. in 4K, yeah. you know? But, um, so anyway, you know, so this was the problem that we had was... Um, so we finished shooting... On time, we ended up editing. Obviously, we had two editors or three editors working around the clock in shifts to get it done. Um, we had Paul Zaza working on the music. Nice. And we ended up at, uh, I think, January 2nd, we ended up in, in Toronto at the, um, at the mixing house, which was the only mixing house at the time that could handle the 132 tracks of sound we had because, you know, I, I was also very much um, a fan of, of really good soundtrack and in, in atmosphere. Yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, all that <sighs> breathing, it's me yeah, through a cool. tube. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> very cool. You know, um, you know, so that it could be... I can't imagine on it. This is an analog board. And yeah. you're doing 132 tracks. Well, there was premixes and premixes. And right, pre-mixes. so you're bouncing down and bouncing and, and down bossing. and bouncing down, till I think I think they could handle 32. 
was the max right. they could handle. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we had a, we had a mixing board that looked like the control panel from uh, Star Trek. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was giant. You know, um, so anyway, you know, we're mixing, and we're also cutting the negative at the same time. Uh, as we're mixing, because the deadline, 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 because to get get a hundred and uh, one one or twelve hundred release prints out took uh, weeks to print, and then shipped, you know. So in those days, you know, I mean, a, a film was like four giant steel boxes, mm-hmm. right, of stuff going out, you know, all over the country and in, in North America and Canada. Or Canada, North America, sorry, U.S. and Canada. <laughs> so anyway, you know, and then we had our editor go down with a copy of the of the the final cut to the MPAA, to which Jack Valenti and the MPAA said, "Tell those Canadians to take their movie and go home. This is X." Wow, crazy! Oh, wow, uh, you know, um, obviously <laughs> panic. Panic back home, panic everywhere. What can we do? What can we do? It's so late in the game that uh, Paramount has already invested in so much. Uh, this they is, needed in theaters. No. They need. They didn't need theaters in a month. Yeah. yeah. You know, or in five weeks. So there was very little to do in terms of of negotiating, defending. It was okay. What do we need to do? Cut it, and let's just. So they said, okay. So we need you to cut twelve frames out of this and fourteen frames out of that, and that one scene where where uh, uh, Mike and Harriet die. uh, Well, that scene just cannot be in the movie altogether. So you have to cut that out altogether. Uh, Is that the one with the drill? That yeah, uh, the drill bit. Yeah, that that, that still hasn't been found, I believe. Right? No, no. That's that's gone. That's That's gone. Now, uh, so there, but were the twelve hundred prints already made at this? Point? No, 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 because we have we haven't so cut you, the negative. So yet. you hadn't got the negative. So okay. now, now we're cutting the negative to our our final cut, our approved final cut, our approved final cut from Paramount and Cinepix, and now this approved final cut is now being asked to cut this Alter out, cut about. that out. So we'd have to go back to the negative and cut stuff out. When you cut something from a negative, in those days, obviously, you would lose the frame in front and the back of the cut. So every time you cut something out, not only did you cut out what you wanted to cut out, but you'd have to cut out two frames on either side. On either yeah. side. So, so what happened was, and then we'd show that cut to them because our editor would be doing that on one cut. And we, we're matching it. You know, film has something called um, edge, edge numbers. So edge numbers would tell you exactly what, what numbers you're at and so on so that you could synchronize your cuts. Uh, so then we'd get that, so we'd cut the negative to that. Then we get a call the next day saying, well, they want another 12 frames out of that. Oh, they just kept going, eh? So oh, was, yeah. Was this a, a response? It was a death to, of a thousand yeah. cuts. Was this a, a, a response to the Friday the 13th? Uh, like, do you think because there had been an uproar? Or? Uh, well, there, there was a bit of the uproar over at Friday the 13th. 
Another problem, which I'm, uh, you know, my, one of my theories also, there's two, and they're both conspiracy theories. One is not a conspiracy theory, but one is. Um, John Lennon got killed. Right. Uh, early December. Major, major backlash against senseless violence. Hmm. Super, you know. Well, you even have Harry Nielsen trying to, you know, yeah, yeah. guns should be, you know, he's, yeah. and, he's and, trying to get and, guns and, and, you know, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, here's the guy who's saying, give peace a chance, you know, love is all you need. Yeah. You know, dead, you know, senseless. Uh, two, um, there was a backlash with Friday, you know, that they found too violent. And when you look at, when you look at what we did, to what, what? Yeah, yeah. Friday was man, oh man, oh man. You know? <laughs> yeah, you it, go up uh, it should a be, couple it should, levels. It yeah. should be, you know, Friday would have been PG thirteen compared yeah. to what we had. It's just you wild, know? like because um, if you go a year or two later, the stuff that everyone's getting away with in the eighties. Six months later. Yeah. yeah. Six months later, my friend. It, it's know. kind of funny that Hollywood was so anti. Like they didn't like these slashers, but they loved the money. I know Paramount's famous for like. Every oh, yeah. time these these movies, they made the money, so they're happy about it. But they're kind of like, ah, oh, I guess we got to do another one. Oh yeah, they'd hold their nose, you yeah. know, yeah, while they, they cash while, their while check. Yeah, yeah, exactly. While they're <laughs> counting the cash. Yeah. So anyway, Which I guess they do with most productions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. I mean. I mean. You know. So anyway, um, by the time we ended up satisfying Mr. Valenti. You know, I said, you know, this is no longer my bloody Valentine. This is my anemic Valentine. <laughs> you know, there is no blood left in this. Um, my my conspiracy theory is also somewhat a little more. Um, we were making some pretty good movies in Canada in those days. Mm -hmm. um, Meatballs, for instance, just broke the record, box office record for any comedy. That's in the history of film at the time. Crazy. Yeah, that's that's a pretty, uh, you know, small Canadian production that has, mm. at that time, a star that's done yeah. nothing. Nothing. He, he, was, he, was, he wasn't even in uh, Saturday Night Live yet. Yeah, I think he, he had done he had the... just done one season He had done the one, and he was, couldn't find a role. This is Bill Murray, of, yeah. of course, yeah. for, uh, but... Yeah. He was a bomb to the point where he had to go on national television on Saturday Live and said, I know I'm not really working out, but can you give me a, more of a chance? <laughs> yeah. And then, so that's the guy that they got the star in. Yeah, and it's, it becomes massive. Yeah. So anyway, you know, so basically, um, I think not necessarily Paramount, but I think Tom Valenti and the MPAA, it was not in their interest to have a to to Canadian have another hit, right? They didn't want another him, They didn't want it to be uh, Hollywood North yet. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it, we, we were threatening. Uh, you know, so anyway, um, then the film came out, um, and uh, you know, it did very well the first weekend, and then started not doing so well because basically, like I've always said, you know. When, when you're selling caviar and giving out hot dogs, word of mouth will get to the around. point where right. this caviar tastes like a dog. Yeah. You know? So, um, and then I kind of forgot about the movie. 
So, no. so when is it that, um, when is it that it becomes back on your radar that this is so influential? Um, I guess when uh, that fabulous Irish, my punk. bloody Valentine, my favorite. Yeah, we were about to yeah. say. So it. yeah, so I was wondering. So Maddie and I played in a band for ten years, and that's heavily influenced, heavily by influenced that. by that band. <laughs> Um, and that's how Greg, your neighbor, said that we should connect because I was wearing my, I have multiple My Bloody Valentine band shirts and I was wearing one of them and we're out for a drink and he says, well, have you seen the movie? And I'm like, I love the movie and, and the podcast we're doing, we're doing this whole thing and I tell him about the slash, he's like, well, you'll never guess who my neighbor is. <laughs> um, and is, so this is why we're together today, but, uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, I would. I, that's pr- probably one of the reasons why I was always curious to see this, and and it was kind of even when I was in high school. Uh, this movie wasn't super easy to to see. No, no, no. I mean, there was a obviously there was a DVD release, mm-hmm. and then um, you know Paramount was kind of loath to put it out even as a as a or sorry, it was a VHS release. Paramount was kind of loath to put it out even as a DVD. Um, and then with, uh, with Bloody Valentine, the band, came a new group of, um, of, of I guess, viewers or fans. or Because or, they were uh, very uh, upfront about that this is why, where the band name came from. That yeah. we're, we're, we love this movie, yeah. Yeah, you know. So it, it, it got a whole new group of people interested in it. That's awesome. Um, you know, then, um, lo and behold, you know, I, I'm asked to do a director's cut. Mm. And I say, finally, what a great idea. <laughs> <Fucking> a, man. <laughs> you know, and then, then I get told by Paramount and by Cinepix, well, we can't find any of the material, so we won't be doing a director's cut, you know. That's all. What happened was, we had to hand over all the negatives to um, to Paramount. Uh, negatives are very fragile things. Mm-hmm. They tend to deteriorate very quickly, if not under uh, the perfect um, climate or 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 temperature and and. Temperature and humidity controlled well, environment. It, it, like it, even Hitchcock films were almost ruined for yeah. forever. Yeah. It, if it wasn't for uh, Scorsese and Spielberg and I believe Coppola and a few yeah. other directors who were yeah, aghast when they were trying, they went to these studios to watch the print yeah. and realize this is almost done. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, there was nothing left. Uh, Everything we found so far has been snippets of of, of work print that, for right. some reason or another, somehow, uh, survived. somehow survived. You know, I mean, the last batch, this last batch, that's the Shout Factory badge, mm-hmm. batch, batch. Uh, Cinepix got sold, and basically, their library is what constituted the beginnings of Lionsgate. Okay. Uh, Andre Link, the partner, John Dunning's partner in Cinepix, became the first chairman of the board of Lionsgate. Um, 
and Cinepix was closing down their, their warehouse in Montreal. And in some locker that was locked that with a lock, and they had to break down the lock and everything else, they found a bunch of work print reels of, of these things that, got, that just got put back in. Oh, wow. Oh, that's fantastic. And it was in horrible condition. But now with the uh, technology, with the technology, you know, I mean, the Shout Factory guys did such a yeah, great job. Absolutely. The restorations of, seamless. of yeah. some of these uh, releases yeah. in the last yeah. five years have yeah. been out of this world. And now don't have to have, it doesn't have to be Vertigo. Yeah. I, I like remember watching the 2000-ish version of Vertigo, and it costs, like, to make a movie what they did to restore oh, yeah, yeah. that, like, yeah. It just it, a, it, it was probably movie. more more of a budget than the actual movie. Um, yeah. And they, you know, they they were getting all the living people to do do all. Like, there's yeah. a great documentary on that uh, yeah. uh, Blu-ray or, or I guess yeah. it was DVD release. But I kept thinking, like, there's no way they're going to be able to do this for all of these movies. And and it's been kind of amazing how it's changed in the last 20 years. Yeah, the the funny thing is it's almost the opposite. It it seems like these days the big studios don't care as much about the physical media, and they kind of throw the releases out with a feature or two. It's all the boutique labels, the Scream Factory, the Arrow Video that are that are putting out the three different cuts and the hours of extras. And they're going back and they're finding interviews with the directors and actors where I feel like the studios... Don't care as much, which which is unfortunate. I mean, I'm glad that all these boutique labels exist because mm-hmm. we probably wouldn't have, you know. But you know, it's just my the, bloody Valentine yeah. without. It's just the economy of it, you know. Yeah. To 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 this to the big studios, this is peanuts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, my wife used to uh, run Anchor Bay Canada. Oh wow! And uh, so, you know. It was one of those. They were kind of the original they're, boutique. They're, they started. They started. They started. You know, uh, oh. like she says. You know, if it had night, dead, <laughs> yeah, blood yeah, in yeah, it, it. She's released it. That's you know? if there's a rage uh, in the title. It's well, probably I think yeah, those yeah, are the yeah. releases that got us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that Anchor Bay when you that know. came on. You're like, all right, yeah, yeah we're and, in for it. You know, <laughs> and she would, she would, you know, re-release things with new additional, um, you know. Interviewing actors. Usually, she, they did, they did the Black Christmas Introduction by the director one. before you yeah. pop on, that kind of you know, cool they stuff. Did, they did a very cool release of Black Christmas, mm-hmm. you know, re-release, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where where's a bunch of new people, that, you know, in, interviewed and so on. So I think, you know, when, when a boutique company does it and they make a decent profit off it, that is, that'll keep their company going, mm-hmm. you know. That wouldn't keep coffee going. That no, profit yeah, wouldn't yeah. keep coffee going yeah, at, at Paris. Wouldn't get those yeah. Hungarian beans. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 You know. So, so you know. So I mean, basically, um, you know, Belly Valentine. Then obviously came the um, the remake. Have you seen the yeah, the remake? I'm curious yeah, what your yeah, thoughts are. Yeah, I've seen the remake. You know, I mean. Uh, I think it's there's a couple yeah. of fun things in it. Uh, <laughs> You know, my usual answer to that question, which I've been asked more often than I care to to uh, remember, we didn't have is, that on on here to be honest. Uh, if you can read our notes later, we've we've been uh, covering most of this that's stuff. Okay, you know, that's but, okay. That's you okay. Know, I mean, you guys can hit me with a new one. Um, basically, it's this. You know, the film industry started what about 120 years ago. Yeah. 
give or take. During that time, how many films have been made? 200, 300, 400,000? So, yeah, that's probably a good no. idea. Yeah. How many of commercial those? Commercial films. Yeah. yeah, commercial films. You know, films that you actually saw in the theater. Yeah. You know, uh, how many of those have been remade? Two, three, four hundred? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a small sure, number. Yeah. yeah, It's a very small number. So I'm honored. Of course. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, that's my, you know, I mean. Would you have ever thought um, in the, those, you know, when the movie was out and, uh, you know, you'd kind of, as you said, kind of forgotten or, or, or moved past it. Did you ever think that maybe, maybe one day you'd be talking about finding, you know, work footage in a locker or anything? No. <laughs> no, honestly, um, you know, um, the disappointment of, of, of how, uh, you know, how anemic Valentine became kept me away from thinking about it for many, many years. And did it affect what you were going to do yeah, after, yeah. after that? You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and basically, I, uh, I stopped making films for a few years. I, uh, I went in, back into uh, television commercials and... You know, I said, you know, if I'm going to be a, a slut, I might as well be a very well-placed slut. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so I made American Express commercials and, you know, um, Campbell's soup commercials and head and shoulder shampoo commercials and, you know. But then you do get to work with, uh, you know. Then I went into television. And, 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 uh, and yeah, you've worked with some Kyle McLaren, uh, Mike, oh, yeah. Michael Caine, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, so, but, but like I said, the early 80s, I went into commercials, and then I went off to do a television series in France for three years, uh, which was a French-American-British co-production, where I ended up working with some fabulous British actors and American actors. Um, actually, I had... Um, I worked with Steve Buscemi when it was, I think it was his third film so or just show a, ever. after he's got out of firefighting, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, basically, yeah, you know, he showed up to play the Black Knight, you <laughs> know, uh, in one episode of this uh, television series that I was sort of like key director for. So this gets the juice kind of yeah. back going. So, you want to yeah. work with actors, you yeah. want to work Yeah, on so I, I did that. Then I came back to Canada, and I started working a great deal in French, mm. uh, where I got my first love comedy back. So I started doing a lot of French comedy. Then I did probably the two of the most successful television series ever in, in French, Canadian, or Quebec history called Scoop and Omerta. Uh, made a bunch of other comedies, La Florida in French which was probably one of my favorite movies of all time that I've ever made. Nice. Um, I did Les Boys. I did a lot of, a lot of French work over the years, uh, which allowed me to... The French work allowed me to do... I've always loved commercial work. I've never been one to... I've always kind of believed in Louis B. Mayer saying, which, you know, you want to send, send a message, use Western Union. You know, <laughs> uh, you know I'd rather make entertainment. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, 
intelligent entertainment, but entertainment, you know. Um, and really, I, I, I know this from the music business, Quebec in itself is its own entertainment industry, and mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like Japan. I, yeah. I, uh, you know, people are always shocked. I'll be working with a French artist, and they'll go, oh, is this a new artist? I'm like, well, they tell me this, they're huge, but they're, they're not even on the you know, Spotify streaming service, on the Quebec one. Yeah. And they're massive there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the CDs were selling until the pandemic at normal uh, like levels. They kept it because the industry just kept going and going and going. And it sounds like it's, it's very similar with well, the, it was. the film you know, industry. I mean, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, a, a Canadian film box office is a hit if it makes over a million dollars box office. Uh, my last French-Canadian movie made seven-some-odd million dollars right. box office in Quebec alone. Because that, half that population wants something for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, but they have figured it out, and it's something that is so sad about English Canada, and I've always found it that sad. Uh, the, in Quebec they actually want to see their own stars. Right. They don't want to see somebody else's stars. Mm-hmm. So they actually create and have a star system. They have 15 magazines that are devoted to the media darlings of television, of film. And television. Of, of music. All these television shows. All these television that, shows. That are... are, are Almost like going back and looking at old variety shows. I'll, I'll see like one of my artists on these shows, and I, I don't. My French is, is poor, so I'm watching this show and I go, "This looks like something that would have existed 20, 25 years ago." In terms of how, um, it, it feels, it feels um, universal. Mm-hmm. Like everything that is being shown on here, you can tell everybody that watches this show knows everything about this. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, where, where you don't really get like even eTalk or Entertainment Tonight Canada, they have almost no real moving power no. uh, in, in Canada. No, no, they don't. No, they don't. And yet, at the same time, you watch Tout le monde en parle. And, yes, and, I just was you know, talking about this. Show. You know, yeah. and, 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 you know, three million people watch it. You know, I mean, basically, when, when I started working, making television again in English, one of the things that always surprised me was, you know, they'd, they'd be talking about, oh, we had a million viewers for that, mm. you know. And I said, oh, I had three and a half million for Omerta. <laughs> you know, mm. oh, really? You know, and, and so, you know, and groundbreaking stuff, you know. I mean, back when I did Scoop in the, I think we started it in 1990, you know, I mean, we did swearing full frontal nudity on t- where it was necessary on television. in, yeah. in primetime television on Radio Canada CBC. Oh, so more liberated down there. Like it's yeah, kinda... you know. So you could actually, you could do groundbreaking stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they didn't need HBO. <laughs> you didn't need right. a... you know, You know, to watch these things, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, when we did Omerta, which TV. was It's not TV. It's Quebec TV. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so... I mean, it was it was fabulous. So I went mostly into Quebec work for a long time, and then uh, you know, 
And then I came back and started doing more stuff in English again. And now I'm basically, uh, I just came back from Hungary where I um, co-created this big um, medieval uh, miniseries that uh, should be on air, I think, in September very cool. 2024. Yeah, th- this awesome. is like a big deal. I was kind of reading up on yeah. this, and it seems like it's a very big production. Yeah, it is. It's um, it's it's sort of, it's in, in a way, I would say it's like the Game of Thrones without the, without the dragons and the zombies. Okay. God, you that's know? awesome, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh... This has uh, been amazing. This has yeah. been so good, George. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, I, I really, I'm glad we got here. I, we got the. Uh, I was waiting for the moosehead part. I had, I was hiding the mooseheads earlier. I, I just wanted to, s- s- so we could get. Because I, I knew if we just like, hey, thanks for coming. And open, and then we would open the mooseheads, and we wouldn't get the cracks on. Not a timing was perfect. Yeah, it was great. The timing perfect. was perfect. But before you leave, I just want to ask: any dream project, anything that you're. You really want to, your passion project? Well, you know what? It's funny you ask that. And there's a couple, you know. One, it's been a few years now, but we're kind of trying to figure out a way of potentially doing a sequel to Body Valentine. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Um, you know. Shot uh, out, out east. Shot out east. Which uh, you're a big fan of. We, we talked the other day, and, and you go out there and still. Yeah. You know, shot it. I, I want to shoot it in the same place. I want to shoot Concrete. it in. Oh. I've just seen. Is pictures. the mine still? No, no. no. I, I fig- yeah, figured yeah. that might have. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> but I've seen pictures of Sydney mines, and you know, time has forgotten that place. So, it's, oh, well, interesting. Know, and I, you know, my dream is to incorporate some of the the um, the cast that's still alive, mm-hmm. and 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 have them, or for instance, in cases where. They did die in the show. Well, they could now play that person's younger brother or older right. brother yeah, or whatever. Yeah, like you know? a twin or something. You know, so you um, think you could get Peter Mansbridge to play the Hollis role? Uh, like, a, uh, since, No, since the, only, the only one we're not going to get back is her. Yeah. Yeah, she's, uh, she is definitely not uh, part of the... Uh, Enthusiastic alumni of oh, my that, bloody that, Valentine. No. Hmm. no, you know, well, you know, I mean, Mrs. Manridge is Mrs. Manridge, right? Yes, so. yeah, she she can uh, she can do whatever she, she yeah, exactly. Wants. And I and I wish her all the best. She's lovely. I adore her sister too. You know, so Jennifer is an amazing woman and then a superb actress that I've worked with often. You know, and so was so was um, Cynthia, superb actress. Loved working with her. Right. Yeah. You know. But she's moved on, and you know. But on the other hand, there's a few that are still around that are fun. You know, Robbie Stein's still around. Peter Cowper is still around. Lori Hallier's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helen Udy's still around. Uh, Tom Kovacs is still around. And and you still uh, are in contact with all these people? Do you oh yeah, we we are. It's amazing. Once every couple of years, uh, whoever asks us, we'll go do a cast reunion. Mm-hmm. 
We don't care about how much money. <laughs> yeah, just we just want to hang. For, yeah, yeah. We you guys hang. pick up the bar tab and we'll, we'll be there. Yeah, kind exactly. Of we just want to hang and, yeah. and, and get drunk for two I, th- days. I think we went to one of the first we've, ones. We've been was... to two. One was like snowed out. It was like that big snowfall in like 2009. It was Blur, Blur yeah, Cinema. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. the first the, time the uncut and, was going to yeah, screen. The that's uncut, right. Uh, that's and right. there was a blackout. And there's a power failure. Yeah, and exactly. we had to reschedule it. I was so hoping it would be like a William Castle thing where like the Harry Warren would come out with the pickaxe and like a light would shine on him like the freak is out. No, we didn't it was, plan that. It was just you know. a blackout. <laughs> but I remember yeah. you guys, a lot of you were mentioning this is the first time they had been up and talking yeah. about it and yeah. seeing that there was such a fan base. Well, there and there's it. such a love between us. Yeah. You know, it is, it literally is, you know, uh, we had a screening this February in Toronto for Bloody Valentine on, on, on Valentine's Day. Nice. And just for the hell of it, Robbie Stein flew up from New York Cynthia or uh, um, uh, Helen Udy flew in from L.A. Wow. Lori Hallier came in from Vancouver. Oh, that's awesome. Just to hang. Nice. You know. That's very cool. Just to like hang. High school reunion kind of deal, right? It's, it's exactly it. You know, I mean, we love we, we love each other and we have so much fun. You know, one of the our best memories is uh, being with uh, with Alfie. With uh, with Howie, the character Alfie, mm, yeah, um, it was a year before he passed away. We were in um, in Tampa Bay, which was an amazing experience and a great Imagined. time. You know, so we try and do that every now and then. But well, we're, you know, maybe, we love each other. Maybe we try to get uh, one of the Hamilton uh, theaters. Yeah, 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 that'd be <laughs> kind of awesome. Great, you know? <laughs> and the other one I want to make is called Darkness at Noon. From um, Arthur Kessler. It's um, it's the book that inspired George Orwell to write 1984. Oh, oh very cool. cool. So, hopefully, before I get too old, I might make that. That sounds awesome. Well, I hope you I hope you do. Yeah. And um, yeah, thanks again for our yeah, visit. I don't know so if there, is there any uh, social media or anything you want to plug. You want to? You got anything to plug? We we don't normally have people. This is the first guest. Uh, we should also say that's been actually in the studio mm-hmm. uh, with us. So we appreciate that. Normally we're well, just arguing with one another in here. <laughs> and, and, uh, for well, no, no. Actually, actually, I'm not a big fan of social media, so I try to stay off it as much as possible. I wish we could. Uh, you know, um, there is. I will be doing a little. Um, web series with my wife called Ominous, uh, which is actually based on um, known urban legends of oh. of of the Golden Horseshoe area. Oh, that's kind of fun. And, and you were talking about shooting this down something in Niagara. We're okay. shooting something off, in off Niagara, um, the Screaming Tunnel in Niagara. Mm-hmm. And a few others, and uh, we're hoping that we can turn that into a, an anthology television series of modern reimagining yeah. or retelling of urban urban legends like the Lovers Lane in Ancaster, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, Hits FM in St. Catharines. Uh, um, and and many many others. So I well, we'd love this. And now Susan, on the other hand, when I come back. Susan will be more than happy to tell you guys <laughs> and get all this the uh, no the yeah, that social sounds media awesome going. to us. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, gets yeah. There. Well, keep us in the loop. Uh, I thought for a second there when you pause, you were gonna say, 
Well, except for my new TikTok dance craze that I've been working <laughs> yeah. on and, and no, that I'm uh, trying to make viral right now. The Mihalka. Wednesday Adams. It's a new one. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm, that, I'm, I'm not a big fan, you know, and I found it so boring. You know, um, well, that's why we do this movie podcast where we watch an insane amount of movies. What, what's coming up? You're the, you're the last episode before we start our Shocktober series, and it's a right. competition out of the three of who can watch the most uh, uh, horror movies, horror TV, or, or Halloween-related uh, uh, TV or film. And, uh, we pretty much don't sleep for it gets, a month. It, 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 it honestly, <laughs> we're very it gets competitive into, we're, people. <laughs> so we always say we're going to take it easy, and then uh, we have a point system. It's on honor system, but you can tell that everyone's watching this stuff. By the end, we're we're wrecked. <laughs> well, three movies a day plus a full time job and a family really uh, yeah, yeah, that, racks, that, racks that, it up. Take its toll. Yes, yeah. yes. You know, uh, no. no one said watching movies was easy. Or yeah. actually, no. no. Everyone said. I love yeah, watching yeah. movies. I just yes. hate looking at social media. <laughs> uh, we're, we're similar. I think that's why we're we we're, we we have this podcast. Yeah. But uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks. George, thank You're you very so welcome, much. Guys. It's been awesome. Yeah, fantastic right. hanging out with you. I hope you guys had fun. So this is the Movie City Maniacs. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, which George. George, it sounds like he'll be on right after uh, this episode. Well, I'll be looking for it right away. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. You can email us at moviecitymanics at gmail.com. And yeah, we have a Facebook uh, group, uh, like page, group page. Just uh, join us and come uh, discuss. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stay Thank scared. you all. <laughs> Once upon a time, on a sad valentine. In a place known as Annie Mine A legend began Every woman and man Would always remember the time And those who remained Were never the same You could see the fear in their eyes Once every year As the 14th draws near There's a hush